0: Well, welcome back to our new series, Getting to Know the Old Testament. we have already covered a a couple lessons in this series, this kind of big picture overview, the Old Testament in general, and then the Torah in general. But starting tonight, we're going to begin with this book-by-book study of the Old Testament. And where else could we begin but with Genesis? I want to quickly remind you what we're trying to accomplish here. We aim to spend... One message giving an overview of each book of the Old Testament. What do we hope to achieve in that? I now, mean, obviously, we're not going for a comprehensive look at each book. But at the same time, we want to move beyond the pure basics that you could get by just reading the intro of a study Bible. Instead, we want to give you, yes, a solid introduction to each book of the Old Testament. But at the same time, really helping you grasp better the flow, the structure, the purpose of each book of the Old Testament at a deeper level. Each Old Testament book is unique. Each was written for a specific purpose. And being exposed to that purpose, as well as many many other aspects of the composition of these books, goes such a long way in helping you better understand God's word and rightly applying it. And that's ultimately our aim here, that you would just better understand God's word and rightly apply it. We're going to begin today with undoubtedly the most Foundational book in the whole Bible, Genesis. So you can turn to Genesis, Genesis one. We'll be all over. We're gonna start off in, in these kind of introductory messages. Try and stick with maybe a, a similar outline to each, just to give you a basic flow. We'll start with you know basic background. You might say quick facts. Just get some of the basics established here, like the title. You know the Hebrews labeled. Uh, the first, or the books of the Torah by just the first phrase in the book. So with that logic, what would they have called the book of Genesis? In the beginning, that is what they called the book of Genesis. Our English word Genesis, though, comes from the Greek Greek Septuagint and the word for origins, which makes pretty good sense. The author, the book of Genesis never self-identifies an author, not directly or indirectly, But as we learned last week, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, they're always grouped together in Scripture. The Torah is one unit. It's a five-volume book. And elsewhere in the Torah and out, there's plenty of evidence that it was written by Moses. It claims to be written by Moses. Christ himself and many other places uh, attest that Moses wrote the Torah. And if Genesis is included in the Torah, it's pretty safe to go with all of church history and believing that, yes, Moses did indeed compose The Torah makes perfect sense, too, because so much of Genesis clearly requires supernatural revelation. Who witnessed creation? Um, But Moses up on Mount Sinai, in the presence of God, what better, better place for God to reveal such truths to him? The date, it's pretty hard to pinpoint the exact date of writing. We know the Torah was completed before the death of Moses as Israel was about to take the promised land. And so therefore, most roughly put the date of Genesis to around 1406 BC. The date of the events recorded in Genesis are much different though. I mean, Genesis goes from creation to the death of Joseph. And scholars date that around 1804 BC. Very interesting though, how even if you have an early date for the earth, most of human history took place before the time of the patriarchs. That was about 4,000 years ago. Now, the audience, Genesis was written for really the benefit of all Israel and every generation to come. But as you mentioned last time, most directly, it was written to the second generation of Israelites after the Exodus. They're camped on the plains of Moab. They're about to cross the Jordan and take the promised land. And that's when Moses delivers to them the full Torah, and that would have included Genesis really gets into the purpose of Genesis. Genesis explains the origin of many things. Sin, the nations, Israel itself. It also explains how Israel ended up in Egypt. But through it all, it showcases a God who will stop at nothing to keep his covenant with his people. That God's sovereign choice and preservation of Abraham's family is on full display in Genesis. And that's meant to give Israel hope. That this God, the same God who chose their forefather, will preserve them and give them this promised land, which, well, he promised to them. They can count on this God to deliver them based on the unconditional promises he made to their forefathers, which are recorded in Genesis. Now, speaking of purpose, let's, let's talk about a little bit more purpose. So, from you know, basic background now to a section on the purpose of Genesis. As I already alluded to, Genesis serves a clear purpose in giving Israel and all people an explanation of the origin of, well, all things. Where did the world come from? Where did people come from? Who are we? Genesis has answers. And these answers are inextricably linked to God. Where did the world come from? God. Where did people come from? God. Who are we? We are the part of God's creation made in his image. This sets us apart. And forms our identity. We were made by God. We were made for God to serve him and his purposes, not just for us. This Talk about worldview forming. Genesis is essential for that. But the early chapters of Genesis were also written to explain what is wrong with this world. Why are we separated from God? Why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Why does all life end in death? Genesis, likewise, gives answers. Man has rebelled against God and introduced sin into his perfect creation, thoroughly corrupting it. This is a problem for us in more ways than one. But importantly, Genesis also reveals the character of God, and that includes his holiness and justice. That man is fallen and corrupt and unholy, and therefore falls under the wrath of God. You see this in the fall, in the flood, at Babel. What's very interesting, though, is how all of these major world events are told in just a few chapters in Genesis 1 through 11. We call that typically, you know, primeval history, the time before the patriarchs, from creation all the way to Abraham. And really, when you think about it, we don't know the exact date of the earth. We believe in a young earth here, but even still, that means more time passed between Genesis 1 and 11 than from Genesis 12 to the present day. The vast majority of earth's history is in Genesis 1 to 11. Yet so little has been recorded. God truly only included the necessary highlights. And they're there for a reason. They're explaining why things are the way they are today. What's also interesting though is how the lion's share of the book of Genesis. It's not on creation or the fall or the nations or the flood. That's chapters 1 through 11 all mixed together. But the lion's share focuses on one man and his family. About Abraham and his descendants. Just think about that. Two chapters are devoted to the creation of the universe. But then you have dozens of chapters telling stories about this one man and his family, this random guy from Mesopotamia. What does that tell you? In this book of beginnings, I guess Abraham and his family are pretty important. And they are. What is this story? of the Bible ultimately about, not just Genesis, the whole Bible. You could say it's a story, obviously, of God, but his redemption, his salvation. That's why God revealed the Bible. If God was not going to save anyone, if he was just going to judge everyone, he did not need to reveal himself. There's no purpose in revealing, he's just going to judge. But he revealed himself precisely because he deemed to save. He was going to save this world. He was going to redeem fallen man. He had a plan of salvation from the beginning. And the reason Abraham and his family are so important is because God chose them to play a special role in the outworking of that plan. kind a nice dovetail to this morning, by the way, since we saw a bigger span of God's salvation history, but it really does start with Abraham. Now, this history is of special interest to national Israel because they are the physical descendants of Abraham. But it's also of special interest to us, the church, because we learn we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. All those who are of faith are his spiritual descendants, heirs to these promises. And God's promises to and through Abraham are a pretty big deal. We're going to learn about. So Genesis was written to tell the beginnings of the universe, the beginnings of man and sin, the beginnings of the nations. But really, most importantly, in a way, is the beginnings of Israel. This is the people whom God would choose to be his people. And this is why the majority of Genesis details God's promises and preservation of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons, notably Joseph. Again, this fact reveals even more about God. He's a creator God. He's a holy God who judges. But Genesis also shows he's a merciful God. He's a gracious God who saves. He's a covenant-making God, a covenant-keeping God a sovereign God who is interested in bringing blessing on the world. Man has fallen away from God and is hopelessly lost in sin. But God just purely in grace is setting in motion a plan to redeem and restore this broken world. Now, one last thing, Genesis also serves as a precursor to Exodus through Deuteronomy, the rest of the Torah. This is volume one in in the book of the Torah, Well, this really sets the stage for everything else. And in Israel's history, it's very important. If you're that second generation of Israelites after the Exodus, you're sitting on the plains of Moab, across the Jordan is this promised land. You're going to have, and at that point, there was no written revelation, right? This is the beginning of God's written revelation. They were the first ones to inherit written revelation. I'm sure they had questions, which they could only rely on oral history for, But, you know, why are the Israelites entitled to this strip of land? Who is Yahweh? Why is he the God of the Jews? What is expected of God's chosen people? Genesis is absolutely foundational to answering these identity questions for Israel. They're about to take this land. And their entire national identity as the chosen people is founded in Genesis and then fully formed in Exodus. But that's next week. So anyway, I hope that the purpose and the place of Genesis uh, will become even clearer now as we look at a bit of its structure, get into it a little bit more. I'm going to give you kind of a high-level outline of Genesis and go over its basic plot, which will help you see its purpose in action. So you can put up that one slide if if it's working. Just one today just to give you a little something to look at. Now, Genesis is a highly structured and ordered book of the Bible. Normally, when we try and outline a book of the Bible, it's a somewhat arbitrary process. We're, we're grouping together chapters, you know, as best we can externally. We're thinking like, how, how do these fit together? We're coming up with an outline. But not with Genesis, because Genesis has its own built-in internal, very clear outline. That Moses himself organized this record around Ten uses of a key term. That key term is up there, toledoth in Hebrew. It means generations. This word refers to things begotten. Genesis is the book of beginnings, right? Well, ten times this key term is used to introduce ten different records of beginnings. Now, of course, none of these are random. They all have great purpose and place in the plan of God's progressive revelation, just take a quick look at them. In fact, why don't you turn to Genesis 2, not chapter 1 actually. You no, know, the first half is primeval history, which really feeds the need for the Abrahamic covenant. Notice the first five is just chapters 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 always go together. And then 12 through 50, that's the patriarchal history. You now it starts with an introduction and that's chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 3. That's, well, just the creation of the world. But then that the first Toledoth is introduced, look at Genesis 2.4. In the NASB, it says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. You may have a little note that shows that uh, literally these are the generations, or depending on your translation, it you might say these are the generations. That's just the Hebrew word Toledoth. And that word will repeat at the beginning of each of these sections, indicating this is a new, well, section, a new record of beginning. And so you can obviously read it on the screen behind me, but just to make a few quick highlights here, you know, it does start in chapter two, verse four. The first occurrence is an introduction to creation itself. It's the beginning of all things. Chapter five, verse one, you know, if you want, you can turn to these and highlight them really quick and highlight all 10 of them or follow along. You know, This is the book of the generations of Adam. You have the generations of Adam. Now, in Genesis, sometimes these accounts are accompanied by narrative, by story. And sometimes, though, just genealogies. And so here, this, the second one is just a genealogy. But it's, it's strategic, nonetheless, for it, it captures the genealogy of Noah. It culminates in Noah, who, though blameless, was in stark contrast to this wicked world. This gets you to the chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. These are the records of the generations of Noah. This section is followed by a large narrative section detailing the flood and the preservation of Noah's family. Chapter 10, verse 1, the generations of the sons of Noah. Here you get another genealogy explaining the origin of the nations and the dispersion of the nations and languages at Babel, like we learned this morning. Chapter 11, verse 10 you have the generations of Shem. Now, who is Shem? He was one of the three sons of Noah. But the other guys, they don't get a record. Shem gets a record because he was the son of Noah who would lead to Abraham. Of course, it's tracing a, a lineage from Adam to Noah to Shem to Terah and then to Abraham. And speaking of Terah, Genesis eleven twenty-seven begins that final um, or really, sorry, introduces the, uh, the patriarchs. So now you're into the, the second grouping of five, patriarchal history. Patriarch just the terms we give to these forefather figures in that day. And you have the generations of Terah, who was Noah's, or I'm sorry, Abraham's father. And he's kind of like Noah. He's a man with three sons, but only one of those sons would be chosen and blessed by God. And, that, and the focus here, of course, quickly shifts to Abraham. In this large section, God calls and chooses and covenants with Abraham. God reveals his plan to bless the world through Abraham's family. You can see how many chapters that section covers. It really gets into the heart of God establishing this covenant relationship with Abraham. We'll obviously talk a lot more about that. 25 verse 12, chapter 25 verse 12 is the generations of Ishmael. Remember who Ishmael was? He was the first son of Abraham through Haggai, or uh, Hagar rather, not through, uh, yeah, not Haggai, through Hagar. Uh, Not the child of promise though. Ishmael was not the chosen son, but God covenanted with him nonetheless. We don't have time to cover this, but you read several key chapters that God made a covenant with Ishmael as well. He promised to make him the father of 12 princes, very similar to Israel. He promised to greatly multiply his descendants, very similar to Israel. He had very interesting, almost parallel promises given to Ishmael and his seed. The one promise that's not repeated though is this promise to bless, which is very interesting. What's also very interesting is how many, if not most Muslim Arabs today trace their lineage to Ishmael. Uh, Quran mentions Abraham and they will go through Ishmael as the sons of Ishmael. Just makes you think, that Arabs and Jews are both descendants from Abraham. One is a chosen line, one is not. One's a counterfeit line, one is not. You could go further with that. It's very interesting, though, um, to see in God's plan, how these, these two people groups are still alive and well today, still at war today, and only Christ's return will change that. Chapter 25, verse 19, you get into the generations of Isaac. Now, most of these, they focus on the sons, not the father. So the the generations of Terah focus on Abraham. The generations of Isaac mostly focus on Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the child of promise. Esau is not. He sold his birthright. You have a large narrative section here following Jacob. It's showing how God passed his covenant blessing on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And he was, of course, later renamed Israel. And so this captures the origins of Israel. Two more, chapter 36, verse 1, the generations of Esau. Like Ishmael, you have a record given of the non-chosen descendant. In this case, it's Esau. What's also interesting is that many of Esau's descendants would later become Israel's bitter enemies, like the Edomites. This is tracing some of the origin of Israel's enemies. Again, they're all seemingly related. It's their cousins they fight against. But, well, as we learned this morning, sin divides. then lastly, the generations of Jacob. This final section, of course, doesn't really focus on Jacob, but his sons, primarily Joseph. This is, you know, a good chunk, chapter 37 through 50. It's almost all about Joseph, though. And it explains how Israel wound up in Egypt, but God sovereignly preserved them alive through Joseph. And it ends with the whole family of Abraham moving into Egypt. And that, of course, obviously sets up all well, the exodus, which is where they came from. Now, I've mentioned something over and over again already, and that's this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant, God's promise to bless. And so I want to talk about this as, you might say, a special focus. In each of these books of the Old Testament, we might try and highlight one you know, special theme or special focus. And with Genesis... Well, it has to be the Abrahamic covenant. You have these 10 Toledoth, these 10 larger sections in Genesis. They're not haphazard. They're not random. And you're looking at thousands of years of, of history. And there's very selective recording on purpose. And what was recorded in God's inspiration had a purpose. It's all true, but God was recording this through Moses for a purpose We've already discussed the purpose of Genesis overall, but I want to include here a a special focus to that purpose. There's one thread that runs throughout all of Genesis and ties together these different sections. And that thread is the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is the heart of Genesis. So let's kind of explore a little bit more this Abrahamic covenant. What's a covenant? It's simply a, a formal binding promise Between two parties. That's all it means. A formal binding promise between two parties. And sometimes these covenants were made between equal parties. But other times they were made between non-equal parties. Such as between a sovereign and his subjects. They were one-sided. We call them unilateral. Well, God has revealed himself. And he's revealed his plan to bless this world. And he chose to use this covenant terminology. This covenant concept. And when God makes a covenant with man to bless, well, that's obviously going to be one-sided, and they are. We find these covenants to be unconditional, unilateral, everlasting. And when God binds himself into an agreement with man, his promise will come to pass. We can take God's covenant promises to the bank. He binds himself per his own promise. It's impossible for God to lie. Well, you can trust that promise to the death. And uh, well, that's what Abraham does, by the way. Now, this is all by grace because we don't deserve any blessing. We don't deserve any promises from God. That he would even reveal himself and choose to bless is just grace. But more specifically, in grace, God's covenant with Abraham was the beginning of God's special plan to redeem the world and restore it. Now, real quick side note, just because you can't, skip over it and say nothing about it. There is a covenant before this, the Noahic covenant, God's covenant with Noah. It's Genesis eight, twenty through nine, seventeen. After the flood, God establishes his covenant with Noah. It's not just Noah, it's literally with Noah and all of his descendants. That's everybody. And even all flesh, all living things. God makes this covenant and it is in essence not to destroy the world again with a flood. You have to understand when God judged the world with the flood, it was a just judgment. Wicked sinners were merely getting what they deserved. But that's, that's no good for us. I mean, if, if any are going to be saved, God was going to have to, you know, pump the brakes on his wrath. He's going to have to show a lot of long suffering with this very corrupt and wicked world. He's going to have to, you know, damn up his wrath and hold it back. And that's what the Noahic covenant establishes. That God, in a sense, makes a a peace treaty with man. He's going to hold back his full wrath, which the world deserves. But what's driving this train is God's desire to save and to bless. God's wrath will come again. He's going to judge the world again, not with water, but with fire. That's only going to happen after his other plan of salvation is complete. And so you get into Genesis 12 and you, you see that, That common emotion. The next major covenant God makes with man. Is the Abrahamic covenant. You can turn to Genesis 12. We might actually start in Genesis 15. But Genesis 12 and, and following. This covenant details. Not how God is going to judge the world. But how he's going to save the world. And restore all things. Now not everything is revealed at once. In Genesis and beyond, God is progressively revealing his plan of redemption. But it begins here in Genesis 12 and following. Now to start, give you again a little more overview. What were the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant? A covenant, a binding agreement between two parties. This was lopsided. God was simply promising to Abraham, what was God promising. What was God unilaterally binding himself to do in this covenant? Well, there are three components, three provisions in the Abrahamic covenant, three, three main ones. A seed. First one, we go with three words, you know, land, seed, blessing. we we'll start with seed. That God promised to multiply the seed of Abraham and form them into a great nation. For example, Genesis fifteen five. These promises are over and over in Genesis. there's dozens, but I'll give you just a few examples. Genesis 15:5, God takes Abraham outside and said and says, "Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them." And he said to him, "So shall your descendants be." Many similar promises where God says He will multiply the seed of Abraham. So the first provision is the seed. Secondly, the land. That God also promised to give Abraham and his seed this promised land in which they would dwell. This land would be their possession forever. And God himself, later in chapter 15, gives the dimensions of this land from the river Euphrates down into Egypt. Look at chapter 13, verse 14. Another quick example. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. You also see affirmed in chapter 17, verse 8, this was to be an everlasting possession for the seed of Abraham. So seed promise, land promise, and then thirdly, the blessing promise. That in this covenant, God promised to bless. Who's he going to bless though? Well, in the blessing promise, there were three parties. God promised blessing to three distinct parties. First is personal, Abraham. God promised to, to bless Abraham himself personally, like Genesis twelve two. God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You know, by God's grace, God was going to bless Abraham. Remember Babel this morning, all humanity gathered together to make a name for themselves. They didn't care about God's name. But Abraham, though, a man of faith, God and grace chose him and God was going to make his name great. Name is a whole other little sub-theme in Genesis We, we don't have time to cover. But for now, God chose this Gentile pagan, called him to a new land to give him a new inheritance, and God was going to bless him. God was going to prosper him and give him a multitude of descendants. So the blessing would go to Abraham personally. Second, nationally, God promised to bless Abraham's physical seed. So, the nation of Israel would receive blessing in the Abrahamic covenant. God said they would become a great nation. They would inherit a promised land forever, and they would enjoy peace from their enemies. And that promise is the one that passed through Isaac and then through Jacob to the 12. And then, lastly, the third dimension of the blessing promise is well, universal all the nations. The Abrahamic covenant promised blessing for all the nations. Look at Genesis 12, 3. When God calls Abraham, he also says, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's reiterated over in chapter 22, verse 18. Right after he almost offers Isaac God reaffirms with Abraham, he says, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All the nations of the earth were going to find blessing through the seed of Abraham. Now, Galatians 3, actually, in the New Testament, makes clear that national Israel, though they're still promised blessing by God on their own as a holy nation, that's true. But they would not be the seed of Abraham to bring lasting blessing to the nations. That would be rather a singular seed of Abraham as Christ Jesus. Read, Genesis, or read Galatians 3 to understand that. And it also shows how all those who share the faith of Abraham, they form his spiritual seed. They're the ones who receive this universal promise of blessing, which comes by faith. In fact, let me just read Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Where Paul says, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. In Galatians 3.29, he says, if you belong to Christ, then You are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. All the nations find part in this universal blessing. Rather, those of faith in all the nations becoming Abraham's spiritual descendants. But for now, just take a step back, though, and recognize what God is doing through this covenant. God didn't have to intervene in the world. He could have just judged it, ended it. But being a God of mercy, he set out to save. Yet in his wisdom, this salvation plan would be unfolded and progressively revealed over centuries. And this was the beginning of that salvation plan. And at its core was a desire to bless. Blessing is contrasted with cursing all throughout the Torah. From the curse in Genesis 3 to the blessings and cursings later in the law. The world is under curse, but God is going to undo curse through his blessing, which is greater. It's akin to just salvation. And what really is God's salvation? It's God's promise to bless, though we deserve curse. And with the Abrahamic covenant, though, we see how God's plan to bless and to save begins, and it begins through one man. And that promise then passed down through his physical descendants. Isaac, Jacob. The national Israel inherited these promises. Through them, God did intend to reach and bring blessing to the world, like we learned this morning. And again, though, you just put yourself in the shoes of these Israelites. They're about to take the promised land. They're the first recipients of Genesis. And it's explaining to them why this land is theirs by divine right. This was the land of their forefathers sojourning. God had given it to them to bless them so that all the nations might eventually be blessed. Now, how the Abrahamic covenant plays out in Israel's history, we will see later in the books of the Old Testament. You should know for now, though, the Abrahamic covenant forms the foundation for all future covenants. They're all elaborations on the Abrahamic covenant. All the remaining unconditional covenants elaborate on the Abrahamic covenant. So the Palestinian covenant of Deuteronomy 30, that elaborates on the land promise of the Abrahamic covenant. The Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7 elaborates on the seed promise of the Abrahamic covenant, and then the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 elaborates on the blessing promise in the Abrahamic covenant. We'll learn all about that in due time. But the Abrahamic covenant is a very blueprint of God's salvation plan. It culminates with Christ. And so it's no wonder that the New Testament writers frequently connect the coming of Jesus to Abraham in significance. In fact, the very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David son of Abraham. And it goes from there. Well, much more can be said on the Abrahamic covenant. A lot of ink has been spilled. Just, we'll just say this, the more you get to know the Abrahamic covenant, the better you're going to understand the development of the Old Testament, the better you will understand Old Testament prophecy, the better you will understand New Testament fulfillment, the better you'll understand your own salvation. And so we are just giving this kind of overview here. If you want to run with it, come see me later and I'll, I'll help you run and learn more, even more about the Abrahamic covenant. For now, our time is nearly up. So I want to finish by highlighting a few major themes. So let's move over into some major themes in Genesis and how they profit us. We'll just cover four, although there's many, many more. But for the sake of time, the start of the holy God who judges a holy God who judges. You know, the fall of Adam and Eve made clear that this is not a God who can just turn a blind eye to sin. He's holy. He must be separate from sinners. And they are immediately and forever removed from his presence. And so are we. The wages of sin is death. And so much of Genesis shows this. Genesis 3, the fall. Genesis 4, Cain. Genesis 6 through 9, the flood, Genesis 11, uh, Babel, Genesis 18, Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a holy God who judges sin and evil. But that is part of his righteousness and perfection. Know one example of this, one highlight. Genesis 18. Why don't you turn there? His judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, the Lord visits Abraham to reaffirm his covenant. But meanwhile, he lets Abraham in on his plan to judge Saga and Gomorrah. Verse 20, the Lord says, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. They had multiplied transgression, violence, bloodshed. We learn later even homosexuality was a chief sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God was going to wipe them out. They, these two cities were on a fertile plain in a valley, and God was going to destroy the whole valley and turn it into a wasteland, and this region became a wasteland thereafter. Abraham, though, intercedes. He pleads with God, like verse 23 Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God, how can you just wipe the whole city out, these two cities? What if there's righteous people in there? You, you wouldn't do that, right? and he pleads and intercedes, and he gets them down to 10. He says, Lord, if just, and the Lord says back, look, if just 10 righteous people are found in Sodom and Gomorrah, he won't wipe them out. Far be it from God. He's not a God who would sweep away the righteous with the wicked. That's unjust. That's not who this God is. He's perfectly just and perfectly holy at the same time. It's just that none are righteous. Everyone deserves judgment. 10 were not found. You might argue Lot and his daughters and wife were found, but even them being rescued, the angels had to drag him out and pull them out. That's just God's grace anyway. None righteous were found. God's justice that fell on Sodom Gomorrah, just like the flood, just pure justice and wrath. People getting what they deserved in their rebellion before God, and we would be no different. It's important for you to realize as you read Genesis, this God is your judge too. He's the judge of the earth. He's going to be your judge. If you deny him, deny him as your creator, deny your sin, deny the book of Genesis. That doesn't change the fact. He's still your judge. You're going to meet him one day. You will die. You'll give an account to the one who made you. And what will you say in that hour? Many will find an eternal judgment, an eternal separation from this holy and just God because of their sin. But thankfully, a second theme is side-by-side in Genesis. A holy God who judges, also a merciful God who saves. These are always side-by-side, a merciful God who saves. That there is hope, because he is a merciful God who saves. Even in the curse, God offers hope of salvation. You know Genesis 3.15, that as he's cursing the world, there's a ray of hope. That a seed of the woman will come who will crush the serpent's head, who will will deliver this world from the power of the devil and all the effects that go with it. He'll free this world from the curse. You know, thereafter, everyone deserves death and judgment. There are none righteous. But nonetheless, God sets his love on some, saving them, redeeming them, calling them to himself. And you see this chosen line, this chosen lineage, weaves its way through Genesis. Those who inherit mercy, it's all by grace. Genesis 5, there's this guy Enoch who walks with God and is taken. Genesis 6, you have Noah. Genesis 12, Abraham, then Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, Levi, Judah. And God's blessing goes through this lineage. None of these were firstborn sons, by the way. And God does not bless as as man sees. God does not choose as man sees. He, He chooses not the firstborn. But he calls out and he saves. We cannot speak of God as holy and just without including his mercy and grace. We need the whole picture at all times. And Genesis starts off and gives us that whole picture. And scripture constantly balances the two. The kindness and the severity of God. The love and the justice of God. Jacob he loves. Esau he hates. Who can explain his choice? All we can do, though, is just seek this God and trust him. He's the one who made all things. He will do what is right in the end. We who inherit the blessing, what can we say? But thank him and praise him and tell people about him. Well, two more here real quick. A sovereign God who preserves. A sovereign God who preserves And God's sovereignty might be the biggest theme in Genesis. You have a God who made these huge promises to Abraham and his descendants. But as you read the stories and you go through, you you find after these promises are made, we're immediately confronted with threats and obstacles to the promises. And humanly speaking, it looks like there's no way these promises are going to come to pass. In fact, the, the chosen line is almost eliminated several times. But God sovereignly works out these various miracles and works of providence to bring it to pass. For example, Abraham, he had no heir. God made all these promises. They're all for nothing. He has no heir. How do you get countless descendants if you don't even have one descendant? Well, chapter 16, they they make an alternate heir, Ishmael. That's how man brings about solutions. But no, chapter 17, God says, no, the heir is going to come through Sarah, even in her old age. This will be a miracle. Isaac, the child of promise, is born, obstacle, overcome. But then you keep going. Genesis 22, God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. There's only one child of promise at this point. Isaac is it. All of the promises are, are funneled through Isaac, and God is telling him, go kill Isaac. Go sacrifice Isaac. How can that be? Isaac is the promised descendant. If he dies, all of God's promises cannot come to pass. And you realize when Abraham went in obedience to sacrifice Isaac, he's not just risking the life of his son. He was risking all of God's promises. They would have all died right there if if Isaac had died in a sense. But at the same time in this test of faith, Abraham proved he really trusted this God. And Hebrews 11, 20, or 17 through 19 lets us know under inspiration that Abraham reasoned, you know, what? if God needed, he would just raise Isaac from the dead. That's how strong these promises are. Nothing is going to keep God from filling these fulfilling these promises to bless. Even if Isaac died, God would just raise him up. That's why he's the father of faith, by the way. He passed that test. But many more threats and obstacles to the covenant can be traced throughout Genesis. Like all the episode of Jacob and Esau. Now, this animosity between these brothers. If Esau killed Jacob, the promises fail. Or if Esau kept Jacob out of the promised land, the promises fail. I mean, he kept Jacob out for 20 years. But eventually they came back and reconciled. Now, I think the greatest display, though, of God's sovereign preservation comes in Genesis 37 through 50 in the account of Joseph. I hope you know the story of Joseph. If you don't, you got to go read this. To, To make it short, though, here's one who among the 12 brothers, he's betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery in Egypt. He finds favor in Potiphar's house, but then he's betrayed by Potiphar's wife and imprisoned unjustly. Things are even worse, but God gives Pharaoh a dream and Joseph the ability to interpret that dream. And so he goes from the the depths of prison to nearly top in the kingdom of Egypt. And in his position, he's able to preserve many people alive through that famine. And what do you know? His brothers would all come down to Egypt because of that famine. He shows forgiveness to them and preserves them alive. But you have to see, this was another threat, an obstacle to God's covenant promise, this famine. If Joseph was not in that position, many many Egyptians would have died. But in this story, more importantly, Isaac and his 12 sons would have died. But God was preserving them all alive through Joseph miraculously. and, And his providence overseeing all these events. Joseph himself, though he was, you know, suffered so much Betrayal and injustice, in the end, he's able to see God's hand through it all, working for good. You just have to see two verses. Look at chapter 45, verse 7 and 8. is where he deals kindly with his brothers. And he interprets what has happened to them. He says, verse 7 of chapter 45, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Well, I thought his brothers sent him to Egypt as a slave. They did, but he understands at the same time, though this actually was God's hand working providentially, sovereignly to, to save their lives and to keep the covenant promise, alive. And then lastly, Genesis 5020. One of my favorite verses, highlight it, remember it. At the very end of Joseph's account, he once again says to his brothers, recalling their deeds to him, Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And that's who God is. He's a God who, who takes man's evil but sovereignly works it for good. Of course, that that culminates in the cross itself. But the same sovereign God who brought Israel down to Egypt, well, don't you think He's got the power to bring them up out of Egypt, to bring them over the Jordan, to bring them into the land, to, to dispossess the enemies there? That's the message to Israel that this same God who sovereignly has preserved our people, we can trust him. We can obey him to take this promised land. He's a sovereign God who preserves. And speaking of trusting and obeying, we can finish with a final theme a blessed people who trust and obey. A blessed people who trust and obey. Adam and Eve failed, but thereafter, by grace God established a long line of chosen men and women to inherit his blessing. And we identify the blessed as those who trusted God and obeyed. Like of course Noah. He trusted, he believed God's word, and then he obeyed. He built the ark. Like Hebrews 11:7 says, God told him about things not yet seen. Yeah, the, the whole world's going to be flooded. Yeah, right. But he believed. And he obeyed. He built the ark. That's why he's in the faith hall of fame. And then of course, Abraham, he left his family. He had a land. You realize he had an inheritance already, but he left it for the unknown. He trusted God's promise for a better inheritance. He obeyed God, though he never saw all the promises fulfilled in his lifetime. But he was blessed because he trusted and obeyed. And though we are not the physical seed of Abraham, we are the spiritual seed. Still, we find in him example an example of true faith. It's interesting how Abraham is used as the example of justification by faith in Romans 4. That we too are justified before God or declared righteous by faith alone. Yet at the same time, Abraham is used as the example of vindication by works in James 2, that we are displayed righteous when we obey. You know, both trusting and obeying are necessary. They accompany God's blessing. And that should be our response. That God has made promises to us as well, promises to bless. Uh, an eternal promised land awaits us. We inherit those promises, not the cursing, by his grace. But that comes only to those who trust God and obey through his son, Christ Jesus. And they prove their faith by obeying him. And I pray that's our response each and every day. But even as you look through Genesis, it's not just a collection of stories about the creation of the world. There's a message of God's blessing to restore and redeem a broken world. It comes through promise and it comes to those who trust and obey. And I pray that's our response as we leave here today. I swear I had enough notes for like a whole second session. Like we could, we could keep going, but we're not going to. That's it. That's Genesis in one message. We'll come back next week and we'll do our best to do Exodus as well. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, we're grateful for your word and Genesis. Every book of the word is a treasure, but Genesis is so special. For we see the beginning of all things, this world and yet our sin our rebellion, your judgment, but your mercy and redemption as well. We thank you that you're a God who judges. That's part of your perfection. Your holiness and righteousness is to be praised. But we also thank you, you're a God who redeems and forgives and restores, who chooses, who preserves. You promise a blessing just by your grace. And, and we now, by that same grace, 4,000 years later are those who have received it. We've inherited the same promises you made to Abraham to bless the nations through his seed. That seed has come in Christ and now we, to us belongs the blessing. We thank you for this. It's, it's amazing and profound what you have done through history. And I pray we, we leave remembering to trust and obey both for our salvation and thereafter and that your blessing falls upon those who trust and obey. We can count you worthy the like one who made all things and holds all things in his hands. We face trials in our lives as well, but from Abraham to Joseph, uh, let us learn to simply trust our God, to obey him, to do what is right. And we, we know it will turn out well uh, per your you know, precious and holy promises. May we cling to them and live for you. And thank you for our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.